Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we'll be talking to Alex Farrow, Director of Engagement and Influencing at NCVO, about the Umbrella Body's new research into volunteering and whether there's a crisis coming down the line. So, first, Russell, breaking points. Tell me about a time you reached the end of your tether and walked out on something, or wished that you had walked out on something. Um, So... There were plenty of times where I wished that I had. And of course, those are sometimes the best stories because you actually stay put because you're too much of a coward. One time I did actually leave. Um, I shan't name the charity involved, but I, I worked for a very large funder um, for about a year at one point and was at one point called into a substantial meeting about my behavior. And the allegation laid at my door was that I had eaten too much dried mango from the selection of fresh fruit that was brought into the office every week. Right. Um, and, you know, you sat there and you had your bit of paper in front of you. I was told I could have my union representative if I wanted and I didn't want. Um, and and then someone laid out this kind of HR charge, which is that there had been concerns raised about the amount of mango that I was eating in the office. And, I mean, I think the writing was on the wall. Do you know, I don't think it was just about the mango, Emily. I think How they... much mango were you eating? I need, no, I need more. This is the problem, Emily, right? Everyone hears that story and they think, all right, there must have been something going wrong somewhere. Listen, I didn't eat an inappropriate amount of mango, but the charge is <laughs> to me in a room with, you know, people looking very serious and making notes on pads of paper. And you know from working with me, Em, I'm not good in situations where everyone gets very serious. So I just got more and more lighthearted about the mango and they got more and more serious about the HR implications of eating or whatever it was I was supposed to have done wrong. And um, the next day I did send an email saying that I was probably going to go work somewhere else for a little bit. Um, no, it wasn't just, I mean, obviously it wasn't a great fit. And I got I got the message that maybe this wasn't the place for me. And to be honest, I probably wasn't doing the best I could do for that organization either. But um yeah, I, I thought maybe Breaking Point came in the form of small packs of mango and that was the end of that. I just can't get over the fact that they said you could have a union rep with you for this. I'm now imagining you and Mick Lynch sitting shoulder to shoulder um, <laughs> being asked to respond about he would, claims about dried mango. He would have handled the stress a lot better than I did. I, at one point, um, tapped my tummy and said, well, I do like mango because <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. Whereas Mick Lynch, I think, would have dealt with it in a very kind of in-your-face. I mean, I'd have left there with a ten percent raise if uh, if Lynch had been involved, but <laughs> yes. I didn't have qu- I didn't have quite the street smart that he brought to it. What about you, Emily? Have you ever uh, have you ever had enough and just gone walk about? Oh, I think again. Do you know what? I'm also going to join you on the coward's bench and tell you just about a time where I wish I wished <laughs> I'd uh, reached my breaking point. It's also an employment story, but um, when I was a student, I worked as a waitress in an Italian restaurant. And um, I was uh, working on a really, really busy Christmas shift one evening, and there was a very raucous party of about 10 people in that I was looking after, you know, having a great time, drink was being taken. Sure, it's Christmas. Enjoy yourselves. Anyway, they eventually got the bill at the end of the night, and um, the woman who had requested it, um, you know, so I brought it over to her. And then as I was standing next to her, she turned to her friend. And she said, and this is word for word, Russ, because I've never forgotten it. I'm so nervous. She turned to her friend and she said, we're not paying this gratuity. Why should I pay any more money for the food I get on my plate just to help out some waitress who is too stupid or too lazy to find a better job? Yeah. Mm. So 
The fact that you can remember that verbatim, verbatim does also say a little bit about the impact it had. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was staggered by it. And I, what do you do? I didn't do anything. I mean, what I should have done, I don't know. I should have just maybe poured a bowl of wine over her head. I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> you just, you, you freeze up, don't you? And you just, but the staggering rudeness of it has stayed with me to this day. And um, I sometimes think about her. I wonder where she is. I hope she's having a horrible day. <laughs> Um, wherever she is right now. But I didn't walk away from it. If she runs a charity now, we could probably do some kind of expose. Maybe. Like kind of revenge being served very cold indeed. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I should go back and uh, see if I can find the actual receipts. Um, We'll see. But uh, why are we talking about this? Well, it's a fairly tenuous link, admittedly. But last week, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations published its latest instalment of its Time Well Spent Research Programme, which focuses on volunteer experiences in the UK. And that latest report looked at how volunteers experienced the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially the impact of factors like the use of technology and the suspension of face-to-face volunteering when, of course, we were all locked down at home. How did volunteers experience that? And one major finding was that it had quite a big effect on volunteers' well-being as a result of all the work they were doing during the pandemic, which was extremely tough on the sector. Absolutely. The research wrapped in external studies looking at the emotional impact of the pandemic, and it included a report by the Wales Centre for Public Policy that found some volunteering roles, particularly those involving vulnerable or ill people, were prone to emotional fatigue. And there was also a June 2022 study from the People's Health Trust, which found that 82% of voluntary and community sector project leaders were concerned about staff burnout. One respondent to the NCVO research said she sometimes felt her experience was thankless and she described days where she would go home and she would ask herself why she was doing this. And maybe bits of this are unsurprising. We all know how stressful and traumatic the pandemic was. You know, we were locked away and we were seeing people lose their health and even lose their lives on the TV every night. And it bled into the volunteering world. Um, NCBO found that volunteers felt extraordinarily stressed and burnt out and warned that many people still carry that feeling today. Um, The report said, we are yet to see how the trauma may come to surface and potentially undermine the appetite for volunteering. The NCBO said that organisations should make it a priority to support volunteers' emotional well-being before encouraging them to continue or to return to volunteering. And it concluded that perhaps the right thing for some volunteers may not be to volunteer anymore. So to take a closer look at the report, we spoke to Alex Farrow, Director of Engagement and Influencing at the NCVO. And I started by asking him what his expectations of the latest report were, and if there was anything that really surprised him in those findings. So I don't think we had kind of a big expectation, but I think we had some kind of a big question that we wanted to unpick. Uh, On the one hand, we had seen through the pandemic this enormous kind of celebration of volunteers, whether that was through mutual aid or kind of NHS responders or with formal organisations. And we saw the Prime Minister talk every day about kind of volunteers and how important they were to society. And we saw lots of new research emerging about the numbers of people who had started volunteering for the first time. There was this renewed sense of kind of community spirit and neighbourliness. So we saw that on the one side. But what we didn't really know much about was actually how had volunteers experienced volunteering through the pandemic? What was it like? And so we wanted to do this research to understand a bit more about the experience uh, that individuals and volunteers had had, not just through the pandemic, but through their volunteer work um, as part kind of through the pandemic as well. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's so funny because I was on the radio this morning. Um, someone was talking about a COVID memorial um, fund and talking about how we're going to memorialise the pandemic. And um, there was a Baroness, I think it was Nikki Morgan, was on Radio Force Day discussing that. And she said, was talking about healthcare workers, but she also actually paid tribute again to frontline workers and to volunteers. And she referenced the springing up of mutual aid groups that happened through the pandemic. So it's obviously something that really did, you know, stick in the mind. And it was a big moment of the pandemic. Um, and it was also totally different because volunteers were having to contend with totally different environments to the ones that they were used to. So instead of working face to face, there was the enormous shift online. There were social distancing measures that were coming in and um, everyone was having to work with these, you know, in these new ways. And I thought it was really interesting that you looked into the impact of digital on volunteering with your research. And you talked about how that shift online did help volunteers feel connected during lockdowns, but Interestingly, you also found that that increased technology, that greater use of digital led to sort of lower levels of satisfaction among volunteers as well. So they, you know, it kept them connected, but they didn't enjoy it as much as face to face. So tell us a little bit about why you think this was. And then what is the answer for charities now? Is it going back to that sort of face to face environment? So the the sense of connection was a key component of kind of a quality volunteer experience. We saw that in our previous research on time well spent uh, back in January 2019. Um, And I guess we were intrigued to understand um, whether kind of virtual volunteering had achieved that same level of connection amongst volunteers. And kind of volunteers in the focus groups that I sat in on, they shared just their absolute joy. I remember um, a leader of a scout group talking about the joy of seeing their group uh, kind of popping up on Zoom during lockdown and just seeing young people's faces and seeing the benefit of bringing them together was was joyful and rewarding. But what we found was when there was nothing else possible, when we were all in lockdown, people were like, sure, I'll take a virtual experience of connection. Uh, but now, for many at least, there is a, a freedom to be in person and that virtual experience somehow feels inferior. So people describe that it just didn't feel the same. They didn't get that emotional connection that they did otherwise. And this isn't this isn't necessarily about the way organisations kept in touch with their volunteers or the way they organised things or the ability to run stuff online. Actually, people got really good at that. Um, but it was about this deeper feeling of connection that was lost when we were all at home. Uh, and that whilst the virtual opportunities was kind of a substitute, it's now not sufficient to what people are kind of looking for um, from their volunteer experience now. And that's really interesting as well, because this, of course, plays into a much wider debate that we're also seeing in the sector as well about how we move back from that pandemic shift. We saw enormous digitalization across all areas of the sector, but we're also seeing these conversations about things like live fundraising events, for example, and conferences and how we come together in those spaces. And what digital did offer was this greater accessibility. Absolutely, you could bring in more people who were kind of more geographically disparate. You could bring in people who had um, accessibility needs through digital. And there's definitely a concern at the moment that that straight return to -to face-to-face could then end up excluding some of these groups. Our starting point for organisations would be talk to your volunteers try to understand and respond to their kind of needs and their hopes. People are concerned about COVID. 
we were running these focus groups in April and May, objectively a time when there was there were far fewer cases uh, than we had seen, but people were concerned uh, about COVID, about protecting themselves um, and about the safety of others. Safety is going to remain paramount for organisations when thinking about their volunteers, but also their staff uh, and the people using uh, their services or coming to their events. I think a key point for us all is to not make assumptions based on what's happened. So don't assume that because we were all able to run things online during lockdowns, it's what people want going forward. Whether that's just because we ran our organisations from home, uh, from our bedrooms, doesn't mean we want to continue running our organisations from home from our bedrooms. Similarly, just because volunteers were able to run scout groups or girl guiding groups or services from home, doesn't mean that's what they want to keep doing uh, now that we're out of kind of major lockdowns and restrictions. Sadly, though, I think charities probably won't be able to be all things to all people. Um, they just will, they won't be able to provide all the range of options because of the many other challenges or considerations they've got to make, particularly as we face on a number of fronts, quite a challenging kind of autumn and winter period. I think we will have to acknowledge that some people might not be able to return. And that might not be because our opportunities aren't there, but because they are making different choices. Um, and I think something that we've articulated in the vision for volunteering with our, with our kind of partners is seeing volunteering as something that people move in and out of over their lifetime, um, rather than feeling our, our volunteers are leaving us, we must keep them. Actually saying, as long as they're making, as long as we're not excluding them, from being able to participate, actually it is okay that people kind of might move away and that they might come back at another point in their life. And if they don't, I hope that volunteer spirit lives on and they go somewhere else. Uh, but it's not about kind of ensuring our volunteers stay uh, with us uh, because they're not ours. Uh, they are there to make a whole lot of choices uh, based about what experience they want alongside their health concerns or considerations and the many other competing things that are going on in their lives which people also told us was really important. Absolutely. And one of the you know, biggest findings of your report, which was also you know, wrapped up and supported by a number of other external um, reports that you kind of referenced and external research, is that volunteers who had stepped up during the pandemic and who had contributed to that massive effort were now experiencing things like anxiety, experiencing fatigue and experiencing burnout. And um, I think that's incredibly, you know, widespread. We know that this is a massive problem. Um, and, you know, you've, there's a lot of really, really interesting findings built into the NCVO report about that. And I think what was really interesting was the warning in there that we're still at basically in a phase of waiting to see how that pandemic trauma and how the knock-on effects of having worked so much over the pandemic and having been part of that enormous effort, we're still waiting to see how that's really going to manifest among people. And that could potentially impact that appetite for volunteering. So you might see people drawing away. I mean, how worried do you think we should really be about this? So you asked me at the beginning, Emily, kind of what was most surprising. And I think this finding was for me that was not just most surprising, but actually most challenging to hear. So I kind of sat mm. in on all the focus groups that we ran and listening people talk in those focus groups about the level of exhaustion, the burnout, and the kind of essentially quite complex emotions that they were grappling with. And you, you said trauma, and I think that's absolutely the right word for it. The pandemic 
has taken this enormous emotional toll on volunteers. I think for us at this, the report is a huge focus of the last two years has been on celebrating and recognising perhaps with kind of great enthusiasm, um, people's sense of duty and the work that people had kind of perhaps selflessly given uh, to support others and volunteered. We're not trying to undermine that kind of positivity through this report, but we are trying to highlight actually the cost that has come with that, and particularly for, for individual volunteers. I think a kind of final reflection on this has been, we didn't uncover anything that isn't really obvious, I suppose. Actually, kind of life living under a pandemic, under unprecedented rules and isolation was just immensely stressful. And people, I think, are still trying to piece together, what did we go through? And where does this leave us today? And we found that people just need perhaps a break to kind of, to piece that together. Um, And it's not necessarily that they need a break from volunteering because they are burnt out from that volunteer experience. I think that's a a really important message, particularly for volunteer-involving organisations. It is rather that actually life has just been immensely stressful. People are burnt out and tired. Volunteering has been one aspect, perhaps, of that, but not necessarily the cause of that. Um, And that now they've got kind of competing priorities and other life events that they want to focus on. And so people might be stepping back from volunteering to start a new job study your train that they didn't do in the pandemic, get married, go on holiday, have kids, hang out with their friends and family, do those things that we didn't really do for two years and they just can't fit everything in. And so for some, people are saying they're going to let go of their volunteering time for now. And it really is kind of for now. People were really clear in the focus groups. They said to us, I will come back. I will return to volunteering. I just need a break for a while. And I think it's going to be really important that organisations let people kind of take that break. That's really interesting. If we combine what you've just said, which is that um, some volunteers might well choose for their own very good life reasons to step away for a little bit, maybe come back later. But also the data found that one in five people said that they might not volunteer anymore because they felt that they sort of done their bit. They really had stepped up at a time of crisis. Those two things combined, does that suggest that there is a threat to sort of long-term volunteer numbers that the sector as a whole is going to have to get ready for? So I think we had already seen a kind of trend away from formal volunteering um, that we had seen. So the numbers were already saying there was a decline in the numbers of people regularly volunteering. um, And some I think organisations have been grappling with that for a long time. I think the pandemic has caused this kind of acute shock, uh, both to individuals and their lives um, that we've all experienced but then kind of perhaps accelerated some of those declines. So even in kind of the last community life survey that we saw kind of at the end of last year, we saw kind of a steep decline um, in the numbers of people saying they were volunteering for organisations. Now, some of that might just be that things hadn't come back yet. So some people just couldn't volunteer formally with organisations because those opportunities stopped because of restrictions uh, and and kind of laws. Um, But it does follow a trend that was already there. Um, And so I I guess we would be worried that perhaps that that won't just return to what it was before. We did, of course, see like a decline in formal volunteering match a kind of uptake in informal volunteering. So it wasn't that people automatically just kind of stopped volunteering. However, and this is a concern, 
I think, is that a number of organisations, many organisations around the country, rely on volunteers to deliver services and opportunities kind of for communities. So whilst it's quite, it's easy for me to say organisations might need to give their volunteers just a break, hopefully in the comfort that they might return at some point. This actually, this does have immediate consequences for those organisations, especially smaller local organisations that are providing kind of vital community services who might be fully reliant on volunteers to run. So in the short term, organisations simply might not be able to deliver what they, not just what they were doing pre-pandemic, but actually what they were delivering last month or six months ago. And actually that will have a kind of real impact on those who rely on those services. So it's actually not just about the kind of volunteers, but actually also about what the implications are for us as a community or as society as well, because the need for those services or those opportunities, as we're seeing, is still increasing. Well, obviously, what you've described is charities where volunteers might well actually be, we've talked about guilt, trauma, burnout, I mean, very big concepts that we're familiar with now from the pandemic. And frankly, it would probably be good volunteer management to make sure that those guys do have a break because you charities have a duty of care for, for their volunteers as well as everyone else. And then you trade that off against the fact that that's happening at the same time that the queue outside the door for the food bank is getting longer and longer. And there may be fewer volunteers to actually do the work. I mean, is there a sense of sort of maybe one or two ideas that managers can take away from the report on how to deal with that? So I think I, I would be unequivocal that organisations simply can't just ask their volunteers to keep going. Uh, They can't just say, just do a little bit more, stay a bit longer, please do it. For For good reasons, because we are seeing a really challenging and urgent situation in our communities. So it's not for bad reasons that people would say, please just do a bit more, but we can't because the cost is already so huge on volunteers, as we've seen through our report. Um, and so we're not saying that organisations are doing that, but we're just saying don't, uh, because it's really, we can't we can't put that burden on volunteers who need rest and need to recuperate and who might well return, but for now, they need, they need to rest. That does create kind of real challenge in, in who, who's going to deliver stuff. Like, especially when actually so much of the kind of infrastructure and fabric of our society rests on on voluntary action. So I think there are a few kind of really practical things that people can do. First of all, it's just about kind of communication and contact. So people said to us during the pandemic, they liked people, their organisation, a volunteer manager, actually just sending them an email and just saying, hi, how are you? Not with an ask, but just with genuine concern and kind of want to engage. So even if volunteers are saying, I need a break, I can't run my unit, or I can't man the stall at the fair, or I can't kind of volunteer in the charity shop, let them have that break. But do just check in, not to get them back, but just because actually the kind of human to human contact is still really important. Care for them uh, in a way that we have done through the pandemic, but just keep some of that going. I think charities will need to think at a bigger level uh, in the years ahead. And this is years ahead because it will require investment and time and energy, but more deeply about the kind of well-being of kind of volunteers as they have in recent times with staff uh, and kind of 
close volunteers uh, will need that as well, because this is going to unfurl for quite a long time. We are going to be grappling with the implications of the pandemic for years. And as people kind of appreciate what they've gone through and acknowledge and recognise what has happened, we'll just all be at different at different levels and at different stages and different timelines. It was really easy when it was about laws and restrictions to kind of just say, well, on this date, this happens, and on this date, this happens. People's lives are going to be different. People's kind of well-being and mental health and emotional life is just going to be a lot more complex. Um, and so charities are going to have to manage this for years ahead. So check in, communicate, be developing actually the kind of longer term support structures that will support people's well-being over the long period of time. Um, and, and do give them that break in that space um, and give them the space they need to rest and recuperate because actually they've they've gone through a lot. Uh, and and from a kind of resource perspective, eventually, actually, we do need to care for these people, not primarily because we care for them, but because if we want and hope that people volunteer again in the future, not just for our organisations, but that spirit is kept alive, which is really important for society, we need to say that this isn't about an extractive thing. This isn't just about us taking something from you. Uh, but it is about kind of returning to that kind of spirit of voluntary action that we want to see in the future. We can't undermine that by just it feeling like we're just on the take, even when it's for good reasons and we're not intentionally trying to do it. Just to jump in with an observation there, I think everything that you have said also, you know, it's, it's obviously it was about it's about volunteering your research. But I think you can absolutely apply that out to paid staff in the sector as well, because even, you know, we, we did third sector research uh, looking into the sort of mental well-being among charity sector staff. And it, now that was at the beginning of 2021. So it's fairly outdated now. But there was a massive crisis in mental health happening among people working across all levels of the sector as well, not just volunteers, not just frontline, because people felt um, I cannot stop because I know that if I stop, the communities that I work with suffer. And there was that really interesting tension between what you were talking about in terms of the, the sort of the guilt feeling, um, and I have to carry on and I have to put the extra hours in because I can make that difference if I do that, balancing against the own fatigue and the burnout and the mental stress that actually these people are going through by working those longer hours. So it's definitely something that I think we need to see being applied across the sector on all kinds of levels as well. Valuable lessons for anyone listening to this, not just if you're, you know, running a volunteer-led organisation. Couldn't agree more. And um, I mean, we know that the charity sector as a whole is is suffering uh, and is is under enormous pressure. All the research is saying the analysis by by you and third sector. Nine in 10 charity workers say they felt stressed or overwhelmed or burnt out in the last year. I mean, that's huge. Like the Family Commission on Civil Society, three quarters of charity leaders in their study said that they are worried about kind of the staff uh, in their organisations are at risk of burnout due to pressures brought on from the pandemic. Nearly half of those charity leaders also worried about kind of well-being of volunteers. I mean, this is, surely this is kind of, of crisis levels um, of kind of burnout and exhaustion within the sector. And again, we are going to face a time where we are needing 
to expect and ask people to respond to the next wave of crisis. Uh, and uh, Resolution Foundation, kind of one of our member organisations, kind of just repeatedly says we are underestimating at every turn how bad things might be uh, in the autumn and the winter in terms of the cost of living crisis. And it will be charities who will be there to pick up uh, the pieces in, in worst cases, but to be the first people uh, that communities go to when they need that help and that support. Um, and going through that again is going to be very challenging. And on the more sort of anecdotal side and maybe a bit more positive as well, when I've spoken in the last two and a half years to charity chief executives and, and senior people, I'd ask them in the middle of COVID, what's your greatest concern? And to be honest, I expected them to say making payroll or I've got a list of redundancies in front of me. Now, I've no doubt they were worried about that, but their first answer was I'm looking at my staff, I'm looking at my volunteers through Zoom in person if I can, and I'm worried about them. I'm worried that they're you know, they're not coping or I'm not going to know if they're not coping because it's harder to find out when we're working remotely. Um, and that kind of emotional intelligence from the top is something that I think, you know, I've been kicking around the sector for a long time. I think it's a lot stronger than it was maybe a decade and a decade and a half ago. And through coronavirus, which has been such a tough pandemic, have we reached a point where, you know, forged in the fire a little bit, that emotional intelligence has come to the fore and has been really useful and really important. Um, so I, I wonder if that means we come out the other side of this in a stronger position than we would otherwise, even for all the challenges that you've described. But, um, you know, t- tell me if that's a little bit too optimistic. No, I, I remain like very optimistic and kind of hopeful uh, about this, uh, not kind of in the face of all the data uh, that we see, um, but actually through some of the experience that we have seen in the pandemic, surprising things happen. So first of all, I, I, I do agree on the point around um, the kind of conversations that I see leaders having, the types of things that organisations are doing to support their staff and respond is really positive. Like I've also been I've been in the sector kind of 15 years or so. And like there were conversations happening now that I just couldn't have imagined like 10 years ago. The types of things that we're thinking about or talking about, I wouldn't have seen. 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago, but we are seeing that now. And I guess one of the things that I draw hope from is this kind of sometimes unexpected things happen and sometimes the worst doesn't happen. So two years ago, predecessors of mine at NCVO and others in the sector were kind of the finances were the top thing that we were so worried about. We, I think we all thought at that point, we are just going to see floods of redundancies, of charities closing everywhere, um, and that that was the crisis that we were responding to. Whilst I, I think we were basing that on pretty solid data and insight at the time, we couldn't have made a different call. It didn't happen that way. Like it, it didn't. We didn't see the kind of scale uh, of closures that we were expecting. In fact, some of our research last year said we saw fewer closures uh, in that kind of uh, in one of the years 2021 than we would have expected in a normal year, kind of not with a pandemic. Um, And so these were unexpected things that we didn't see. So whilst I am offering some some kind of warnings, I suppose, some insights based on what we've heard, it doesn't mean that all the things I've just said are going to happen in exactly the way I've outlined, Um, because actually charities are phenomenally brilliant at responding and changing what they do and how they work because they always have. 
they've always had to respond to changing needs and changing ways of working. Um, we're just asking them to do it very dramatically, very repeatedly. Um, but it doesn't mean that they can't, uh, they won't not rise to that, but they won't be able to respond to that because they might, they might well be able to. Well, so much interesting food for thought there, Alex. And how nice to end on that positive note, uh, giving us something about, we know it's going to be a difficult autumn and winter. And I think I agree with the Resolution Foundation that we actually have no grasp yet of quite how bad this could get. But we do have to hope that we will see volunteering coming back and we will see the sector continuing to thrive and adapt. So a great place to finish on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Uh, Lovely to be back with you all. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story or two that we've spotted in the sector. Russ, any quirky news this week? Well, any news reporter who has to send out a bulletin at five o'clock every day might be accused of being asleep on the job if, say, 4.20 in the afternoon, we still haven't actually written a word. But (laughs) taking it more literally, Jim Metcalf, this uh, week, he is the CEO of the College Development Network in Rufenshire. Um, He snuggled into a good night's sleep on the Glasgow to London sleeper train for a regular meeting down south, which he takes all the time. And he woke up eight hours later, according to The Guardian, to find that he hadn't actually moved an inch. He'd had a lovely oh, no. night's sleep. <laughs> he'd gone to sleep in Glasgow and he'd woken up in Glasgow because nobody had actually told him that the train wasn't running. Uh, he said on Twitter, they let me get in and get to sleep. And then they just left us here. <laughs> oh, I, no. I mean, Jim has taken this in his stride. He's changed his Twitter handle uh, and various pictures on his social media to reflect this kind of moment in the sun that he's had with the media coverage. Uh, there's, there's a metaphor in there somewhere, I think, about uh, the charity sector not quite moving as fast as it needs to in the direction it needs to go. But uh, let's not explore that too far because I don't want to get the lawyers onto us. Um but let's hope next time Jim has to head south and enjoy the luxuries of the sleeper train, they actually bring in maybe a, a free glass of wine, something to make sure he writes a good review on Twitter the next day because it didn't go very well the last time. Absolutely. Jim, we hope you make your next meeting on time. <laughs> um, and for my part, I have the story of a 1965 wedding photograph that was accidentally donated to an RSPCA charity shop, which last week was reunited with the happy couple just a few weeks before their 57th anniversary. 57 years. 57. Amazing. Amazing. I've done one year and I'm already (laughs) feeling, you know, like I've achieved something. Um, But this photograph was taken on the 5th of August 1965 in Northampton. And then it turned up at an RSPCA shop in Wellingborough, also in Northamptonshire. And the shop's assistant manager, Victoria Bryce, discovered this photograph. And she says she just felt like it was something that did not belong in a charity shop. So instead, she posts the snap on Facebook, hoping to reunite it with its subjects. And it was seen just a day later. It was seen by a relative of the couple, which enabled the shop to return the picture to John and Margaret Laws, who are now in their 80s. It's thought that the photograph of them standing in front of their chauffeur-driven car had fallen between the pages of a book that was then unwittingly donated to charity during a house move three years ago. So for this picture to suddenly resurface again, um, so close to home, is fantastic and just a lovely little bit of news. And it's congratulations to everyone, right? It's congratulations to John and Margaret, who, as you say, have made it through almost six decades 
of marriage together. Congratulations to Victoria Bryce, the woman who found this and had the idea of putting it on social media as well to try and find them. And presumably someone somewhere made the connection. Um, Absolutely. So listen, it's all very heartwarming. So good to, see, <laughs> good to see it all reunited in time for their anniversary, which is next Friday. Congratulations to both of you ahead of your special day. That's a wrap for us this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app so that you are the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Russell Hargrave. A massive thank you to our guest, Alex Farrow, and of course, our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.